strongly impressed with the memory of quite a few of us who've passed from the phalanx on earth to their permanent change of station in heaven. They're no longer with us face to face, but they're with us in heart, in memory, in spirit, and in expectation of seeing one another again. And keep in prayer even now, in fact, Pastor Brown is speaking. He and Pauletta are up in Cranberry. And so just can't keep him out of demand up there. He's preaching the word, so we'll keep him in mind. And I do seriously thank my plastic marine, Emery, for being so faithful to be here for scores and scores of messages. And now for Michael, his assistant, for Lena, for keeping this place immaculate throughout all this time, for Kathy, for holding down the fort, for Chuck and the deacons standing in the ready, keeping in touch, and for all of you, obviously, you've stayed with it and stayed with the word, and there's nothing more important than that. We're going to go to anywhere in Hebrews and also Isaiah 53 today for the message We also mentioned last week, I noticed there's folks that had, didn't make it last week but are here. I want to mention again, we are entering into a phase of history where there's going to be a lot of historical downtrends until the church fulfills its potential as redeeming this part of history, which is quite a possibility. But until then, there will be plagues, there will be famines, there will be disasters of various kinds across the earth. Some of them will touch our shores, some of them will touch the Christian community. The Christian community is not immune from historical disasters, illnesses, etc. But we are distinct in our response to those things, in faith, in hope, and in patience and in the love of Christ controlling us for all humankind. And so take care of others. If during these times you experience any kind of symptoms of anything, it's best to stay away from the face-to-face -face assembly. And uh, I tried to be sort of an example of that a couple of weeks ago, much to the anger of Mike Eilenkoff. Um It's okay, Mike. But just... Keep aware, be extra sensitive toward your fellow believers and pray for one another constantly, as the scripture says, praying for all people, but especially for the saints, doing good to the household of God and to all people. And the church, the New Testament community of which we are a part may very well have a very strong role in redeeming history from its present decline, and there is a strong decline ongoing in history right now, and it's not anything we point at anyone as a fault, because the church itself is more at fault than the general population, so let's keep that in mind, keep all these things in mind, and keep them together. So, Father, once again, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray for Pastor Brown as he preaches at the same hour. And that you'll give him clarity and power as you have consistently. That you'll give him good ground upon which the seed will be received. We pray the same for our congregation here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I decided to come back on a particular note from in a scissors analogy that we use in which a lower blade and an upper blade meet. And I've decided because this thesis of Bernard Lonergan is so rich and has so much application to our Hebrews homily that I'm using his thesis number 15 from his book called The Redemption. I waited many years for that to be translated into English from the Latin and I'm very grateful. I read it a couple of years ago. It's still sticking with me. Thesis 15 from his book entitled The Redemption. And that's our upper blade data. 
the lower blade data we're using is the scriptures that come up to meet that upper blade so that it cuts it. It, it is the truth that we want to rightly divide and bring in our next segment of Hebrews. The next section of Hebrews 8, 1 through 10, 18 is the most critical of the book of Hebrews, the homily called Hebrews, and it may be for our time the most critical section of scripture we could even ever study. And so thesis 15 from his book called The Redemption goes like this. Redemption denotes not only an end, and by end he means objective or goal, but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price. And last week we dealt pretty extensively with that element of the payment of the price. Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins, and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience, that's coming up and will be a big element in next week's message, Lord willing, the power of the risen Lord and the intercession of the eternal priest. And I don't want to forget Dan Santilli and his faithful service. First, then, Redemption denotes a mediation. Jesus is the mediation. We see Jesus as this mediation. Jesus is the mediation. And he's the mediator of a new covenant, diatheces kaines mesites, which is found in Hebrews 9.15. There'll be a scattering of Hebrews references throughout this message because all of this is coming up to our central section. And it's going to help you see the minute exegesis in the light of these larger themes. It's also going to help you understand the Christian way of life in a way that you never have before as something I'm calling our obedience. Seeing Jesus, our mediator, is a salient subject coming up in this section, Hebrews 8, 1 to 10, 18. The central section of our heavenly homily is dedicated almost entirely to redemption. So we're face to face with redemption. Redemption as denoting a mediation. That's what's happening in Hebrews. With strong hints of redemption also as denoting an end, a final goal, the final realization of God's gracious, sovereign intention, which is universal. We can abundantly document from the scriptures, therefore, that redemption as denoting a mediation includes Christ, the mediator himself. And his vicarious passion, using Lonergan's language, and death on account of sins and for sinners. Our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, hugely important in Hebrews, his meritorious obedience, also hugely important in Hebrews and in the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus. The power of the risen Lord and the intercession of the eternal priest, as all of which are stated in Lonergan's 15th thesis. In fact, the whole of Hebrews, which I call a heavenly homily, and that's why its human author is not known. It shouldn't be known because it's a gift from God from the heavens for us at this time. Even though there was a kind of an idiosyncratic genius writing who understood the meaning of the Old Testament as it's engulfed in the New. The whole of Hebrews, especially its central section, that's what we're beginning now and have already a little bit, can be seen as lower blade data coming up to meet this upper blade thesis in our scissors analogy. Jesus as the mediator is much more than a person who stands as a middle point between God and all of humanity. You can't just think of him as God's here, humanity's here, Jesus is in the middle, like Malcolm in the middle. He's not... Malcolm in the Middle, the TV show. You didn't see that because you don't watch mindless TV like I do, which is almost all of it. He's not a middle point. He said, I am the beginning and the end. 
So he is the beginning and the end and the middle mediator. As mediator, he's not a person standing between God and humanity. He comprehends all of God and comprehends in himself all of redeemed humanity. He comprehends in himself the redeemer of humanity who acts toward humanity in sovereign redemptive grace and he comprehends all of the humanity that's redeemed. In fact, all the world that's redeemed. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made, that is, we, the world, might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when understanding him as mediator, we don't just understand him as a middle point between God and man. We consider him as one who comprehends all of God in himself and all of humanity in himself as its redeemer. He is the redeemer who acted toward humankind in a sovereign act of grace on the cross and in his resurrection. He is also comprehending or putting all of humanity in himself. He is the beginning and the end and the middle point. And so Jesus Christ is all in all. That's just a little hint about where we're going with the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, who is the mediation denoted by redemption. What are we doing? We're bringing lower blade data up to an upper blade thesis made by one of the premier theologians of the 20th century. I think he died in 1984. And so, he is not a person who stands at the middle point between God and all of humanity. No. As the middle point, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, also comprehends in himself the one God and all of reconciled humanity who are destined to be redeemed even bodily in the radical change of condition. For Jesus himself is the one who was truly foreknown, called, justified, and glorified. Romans 8.30. As many as God foreknew, and he foreknew Christ, he also called, and he called Christ. Justified, and he justified Jesus based on Jesus' own faithfulness. Glorified, and he glorified Jesus through the power of resurrection and exaltation. And so Jesus is the one who is foreknown, called, justified, and glorified, and he comprehends in himself all of us. Therefore, we are all foreknown, called, justified, glorified in him. It's a done deal. And so Jesus Christ is the unity of the redeeming God and redeemed humanity. He is God turning to the world in a sovereign act of reconciling grace, and in him is also that world that has been turned to him in conversion. These things are going to be fanned out in the future, so don't worry about getting them all right now. Jesus is the beginning, Revelation 22, 7, and 7, 13. 22.13 also with a reference to that. Jesus is the beginning as the redeeming God and he's the end as constituting redemption as an end. For in him all things are to be salvifically summed up, summed up savingly. Jesus is the beginning and the end and the one who comprehends and unifies in himself the reconciling, redeeming God and the reconciled, redeemed humanity, and ultimately all of creation. Now, if you've listened to the first few minutes of this message, you already have a different take on Jesus as mediator than you had before, perhaps. Maybe a deeper one, maybe a wider one, maybe a higher one, maybe a wider one. Second part of the message today. There is, in redemption as an end... Let's get this guy off here. In redemption as an end, 
There is both a penultimate, when you use the word penultimate, you mean second to last, one before the absolute last. For example, like Moltmann one time said, the last judgment isn't the last thing. It's a penultimate thing. It's a second to the last thing. The last thing is a new creation of all things. And so judgment, the last judgment, where a lot of people like to leave that as the last thing, isn't the last thing at all. It is a new creation of all things. And the last judgment has already occurred in Jesus Christ. And it's a judgment of grace so that now righteousness reigns or grace reigns through righteousness because of Jesus Christ. So second thing about the message, there is a penultimate and an ultimate end denoted by redemption. The penultimate end, which is the second to the last objective of God, is what we call the New Testament community or the New Covenant community, which is also known as the church. The church isn't the end in itself, even though she might think so, and in thinking so becomes a reason for the decline of human history rather than its redemption and its progress. The church is not the end-all and catch-all. The church is merely a provisional prolepsis of a universally saved community. And it should view the rest of the world from that lens, not as being the special elect. There's only one special elect, and it's Jesus Christ. There's only one person God ever rejected, and it's his own son at the cross. And so the elect is everyone in Christ because it's Christ as the elect one. So the penultimate end is the new covenant community within history. And that's you. If God has evoked faith in Jesus Christ in you, given you the Holy Spirit, you are part of that church. You are part of that penultimate end in redemption. The community, this church, has the potential within it to be a divine means of pulling up history from periods of decline. Or, in apostasy, the church may be a reason for history's decline itself. The ultimate end, distinguished from the penultimate end, is the total redemption of history, which God's going to bring about. The redemption of history itself and what the Bible calls panton anakephaliosis, which is the Summing up of everything in Christ, Ephesians 1.10 in one way becomes the most essential verse on redemption as end, as termination, where it's going. This means, again, that the church is not the ultimate end of redemption. The church should see herself through this selfie not the ultimate end of redemption, but only the provisional and proleptic end. The church, therefore, when it's functional under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, and what is our obedience? What is our Christian way of life? Remaining under the influence of what you hear in the word of God, if the word of God is taught properly in the power of the Spirit. The Christian life is merely remaining under the influence and inspiration of that word and that spirit of grace. Otherwise, all the goody-goody stuff that people do and call it Christian is just another way of virtue signaling, which is what the woke do all the time. To, and anyone who understands that, of course, is very sickened by it and tired of it. The woke thing is ready to be wiped off the face of history because it is the history in decline, history with the accuser of the brethren at the helm. That's what that is. There's a lot of other words that I could use to describe it, but then you wouldn't think I was a preacher. Now, the church then is merely a prophetic inkling of the universal salvation of all of humanity and the new creation of all things. The worse people get, the more amazed you are at the doctrine of universal salvation. And the scandal of the cross is that the worst person you can think about in history was reconciled to God in Christ as much as the most pious person in history that you can think of. That's the scandal of the cross. Third, 
In the meantime, incidentally, the church is also an inkling of the universal new creation of all things. Third, in the meantime, that is between the times of alteration, you can look at our piano and all 88 keys, and it will play a tune for you. It's called 88 Theses up to this point. In the ones from 67 to 88, you'll see what I'm talking about when I talk about two alterations. The alteration of the human situation, even the creational situation, which can only be perceived by faith, not through science, not through observation, not through empiricism, not through positivism, not through rationalism, not through any academic system. Only by faith do we perceive the change of situation brought about in Christ in the reconciliation of the world. Then there's a change, a radical alteration of the human condition and the universal condition of humanity and the universe itself, which thanks to the James Webb telescope is showing us many more galaxies to where they're beginning to see that somewhere it began and the smart ones are beginning to see it began by the design and will of a being beyond our comprehension. Science has now discovered way past quantum dynamics and all that baby stuff. They have discovered a thing called vertical causality and that the, f the primary function they see operative in this universe, the more they see of it, is what they call causation. And vertical causation means that it was caused by the involvement of an intention and will of a designer. So, so much for the pride of human intellect and science and yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it would be a neat thing to go into a school and show all the failures of Einstein, all the failures of Freud, the egregious and evil failure of Marx, Karl Marx. It would be really fun. Of course, you'd be run out on a rail, tarred and feathered. But that's not my purpose. So in the meantime, in between these times of alteration, which I now call them, there is redemption as intercession. Redemption now as intercession. Intercession itself is a function of redemption as a mediation. It's ongoing now with our intercessor, intercessory great archpriest. In the case of redemption denoting a mediation, it is the intercession of an eternal priest. I'm referring back then to Thesis 15, our Lord Jesus Christ. As our great archpriest, he is a merciful, merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. Looking at Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 now briefly, but you don't have to turn there, just note it. To make expiation or propitiation, very sticky term, propitiation. We're going to try to unstick it down the road sometime, but expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. Who are they? That's you and I in the agona between the times of alteration. It's an agona. It's a time of great struggle, great conflict. Christians are not immune from suffering, but they should know this. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glories that are following, that are coming. They're on the way. Jesus, our merciful archpriest, has made propitiation expiation, not only for the sins of the people, as Hebrews 2.17 and 18 puts it, but for the sins of the whole world, as John puts it in 1 John 2.2, just to clarify some things in his time. And that's by his vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners. Here's some lower blade data coming up to meet that upper blade data. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, said this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. There's the lower blade data. 
Now we go to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to just pick up some excerpts from Isaiah 53. The things I'll be saying from Isaiah 53 and the metaphors within it are the key to the interpretation of that chapter, incidentally. The key to the interpretation of Isaiah 53, or at least part of it. When Paul says he died for our sins according to the scriptures, the primary scriptures that he's referring to is Isaiah chapter 53, especially verses 5 through 12. But we'll be picking out a few of these along the way. For example, in Isaiah 53, 5, and I'm dealing with translations from the Septuagint and accurate translations that may not be the one that you have available to you right now. But in Isaiah 53, 5, for example, the scripture says he was traumatized. The Greek word there is literally traumatizo, traumatized. And the Hebrew meaning for that is pierced through, pierced through. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Yahweh was pierced through. As Zechariah 12.10 says, Revelation 1.7, John 19.37 and 38, he was pierced through. And as Brian taught, in the house of his friends, in the house of his friends, pierced through. Traumatized. The trauma began at Gethsemane. When it came upon him, he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The trauma began to happen. The great head injury of our head, our Christ. He was traumatized for our acts of lawlessness, says the prophet. And weakened here, mema lachistai. Mema lachistai means and I think that's what Paul was thinking about when he wrote that Christ was crucified in weakness. It's a kind of weakness we have no idea about what he experienced, the helpless weakness of a victim where he said, I'm a worm and no man. And so that, again, is on Isaiah 53.5. On account of our sins, pierced through on account of our sins, the discipline required, it says, to produce our peace that would be reconciliation, fell on him. And by his bruising, we were healed. These are many incomplete symbols. You can't, there's no such thing as a complete metaphor and a perfect metaphor when it comes to divine things like what Jesus endured on the cross because there's no human language that's sufficient. Therefore, there's no human analogy that's enough. And so even the prophetic analogies in Isaiah 53 are just different ways. I call them stacked metaphors to show what Jesus endured on the cross. God's righteous servant, by his experience of unspeakable suffering, he justifies many. My righteous servant justifies many, Isaiah 53, 11. Paul interpreted that properly, that many as being all of humanity. And so Paul was a universalist, whether you are or your preacher is or your priest is, doesn't really matter. So the metaphor of punitive discipline. Here's, you've done something wrong, terribly wrong, and dad's coming home. And so you are agitated and anxious and fretful like I was when I was 11 and I got caught smoking and I was waiting for my dad to come home. And there wasn't any peace in my soul until he chastened me for throwing that lucky strike in the wastebasket and starting a little fire. I think my dad saved my lungs that day forever, but anyways, he did chasten me. And you know what the result of the chastening was? Peace. Peaceable fruit of righteousness. For me, it was peace because I didn't smoke again until I was 15. <laughs> but anyways, it, but the point, this is the analogy here. Because as Hebrews 12, 6 to 8 says, there's not a son that God receives that he doesn't chasten, scourge. And the result of the chastening is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The point that Isaiah is trying to get across here is not just that we did something wrong and somebody else took the hit. Our elder brother is the one that took the hit for us. 
But this is the experience of the wages of sin for all of mankind that he experienced instead of us, in place of us. And it's the punishment or the discipline that was meant to produce our peace. Our peace is our reconciliation, and it was because our elder brother said, Dad, I'll take the hit for that. And again, that's just a very weak household analogy. That's what all Isaiah can do. It's all any of us can do is an imperfect analogy for divine things because human language can't cut it. There's not a human analogy that's perfect to divine things. So the metaphor of punitive discipline falling on the righteous servant of Yahweh is a very weak but analogical way of seeing that our peace was produced by someone else standing in our place to receive the punishment, as it were. And I say punishment, as it were, because that has to be clarified. In Hebrews 12, 6 through 8, again, we're told that God chastens every son whom he receives and that this chastening or chastisement, when accomplished, finished, produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The analogy is Jesus Christ stood in our place to produce reconciliation for us by becoming sin for us. That's the reality. See how weak the analogy is? But at least it helps us understand our stand-in. And that's the point. The idea brought forth in Isaiah 53 is that we, his siblings, did wrong, committed sins and acts of lawlessness, but our older brother, and he's not ashamed to call us his siblings, as Hebrews 2.11 says, our brother, our elder brother, took the punitive discipline. It fell on him, and the peace fell on us. It's reconciliation. He willingly took it. He willingly took the punitive discipline as our elder brother. Of course, again, this analogy does not and cannot capture the full reality of what that discipline symbolized in Jesus' case. In every one of these metaphors that are stacked one upon another in Isaiah 53, the idea is eloquently expressed but imperfectly expressed that Jesus took our place. This is the judge being judged for our sins. The lamb led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. And the interceding priest, both the lamb and the priest are found in Isaiah 53 because it says he interceded for those who put him on the cross, who crucified him. And so the lamb, Isaiah 53:7, the interceding priest, for this prophecy predicted that he would, quote, intercede for the offenders, including those who said crucify him. This is what Jesus did when he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Ultimately, the discipline that came upon him to produce our peace signified, or what? Denoted the reality that God was in Christ. There's two ways God was in Christ. We'll get to that down the road. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the transgressors committed by the world to them. It speaks ultimately then of the reality that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. That would take a lifetime to even grasp the fullness of 2 Corinthians 5.21. But we're going to try down the road when we hit the micro-apocalypse in 2 Corinthians 5.14 to 21. You might want to re that read that in preparation for weeks to come. Jesus is our peace, says Ephesians 2.14, and he secured for us eternal redemption through his own blood. Jesus is our peace, and he secured peace for us and gave us this otherworldly peace that we may 
patiently endure the inevitable adversities in the time in between the alterations, the alteration of our situation from enmity to peace with God, the alteration of our condition from this lowly state to bodies of glory like his own. We're in between. And God made him, Jesus, to be redemption for us. He is our redemption. Therefore, in him is the mediation and the end, or the goal of redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Put that together with 2 Corinthians 5.21, and you've got at least a volume of theology. We may even say that Jesus is both the end and the mediation denoted by redemption. And so we see Jesus is the name of this series. And in seeing him, we see our redemption and the redemption of all humanity, all of creation, all of the cosmos, all of time and history. Now, returning to Isaiah 53, once again, the stacked metaphors in this chapter all speak of Christ, the mediators, vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, mentioned by Lonergan in Thesis 15 of the Redemption. They speak metaphorically of Jesus, the Son of Man, as the judge being judged in our place, again, traumatized for our acts of lawlessness, weakened on account of our sins, disciplined to secure our peace with God, and bruised for our healing. All are metaphors. They're all metaphors. And as such themselves, they are necessarily incompletely analogous to just what Jesus experienced for us all. And again, in Isaiah 53, 11, by, and this isn't usually found in translations, by his experience, meaning his experience of the wages of sin, which is a death unspeakable, by his experience of suffering and death, trauma, bruise, whatever you want to stack metaphor upon metaphor. He justifies the many. That's everybody, according to Paul, who was rather inspired in Romans 5.18. So these are necessarily imperfect analogies of what we call the expiatory sufferings of Yahweh's servant, whose experience of suffering that defies all comparisons and a death which defies all metaphors. And by, those, by that experience, the power of sin was extinguished. An experience of atoning suffering and death which led to God's righteous servant justifying many, that is, all human beings. Karl Barth, and I happened to read this recently, eloquently stated it this way in his fourth volume on reconciliation. Quote, he pronounced sentence on us by taking our place, by unreservedly allowing that God is in the right against himself, himself as the bearer of our guilt. He was the divine judge and fulfilled the divine judgment in such a way that he caused himself to be judged so that we should not suffer what we deserved so that we should be those who are judged in his person. So he, was, he who was crucified in weakness, I would say, now lives by the power of God. This power of God is what Lonergan in his thesis calls the power of the risen Lord. Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, whom the God of who? The God of peace brought up from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant. The Father's response to the Son's expiatory sacrifice, lead him up out of the realm of the dead, our great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God's answer, God's verdict on the blood of the everlasting covenant. So now in the power of the risen life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he makes intercession for us to save us completely, to save us to the point of radical glorification. In God's mind, it's already happened. God is already there in your future. In fact, you're already there in your future. You just don't know it yet. So it's precisely the power of the risen Lord, which is the power by which the crucified Christ now lives, the power of an imperishable life in which the eternal priest, again, back to the, to the upper blade data, lives to make intercession always. Fourth and final today, the next element of this thesis that we're going to deal with, <clears throat> not necessarily in order of their appearance in this thesis, is what, Mer what Lonergan calls Jesus' meritorious obedience. A lot of people are offended by meritorious because they think, and Protestants think, well, that means that we've got to be careful of the word meritorious because that will suggest that we merit our salvation by some means. No, the meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ means he merited salvation for everyone. His obedience led to salvation for all. This has so much power in it. This is the message that will elevate the church into new horizons. And every conversion is an elevation of horizon. And only from an elevation of horizon produced by true conversion will the church become once again, because it isn't right now, the power to redeem history from periods of decline. And history can decline to the point where a nation can be destroyed utterly and completely. Plagues that aren't plagues, but biological warfare, sent. Plagues of drugs killing now 100,000 people, mostly young people. One little pill can kill you. Millions of them. Billions of them. I've seen a, t a town in Vermont near where I grew up decimate. It's not a town anymore. It's totally destroyed. Totally. It's gone. The people are gone. The whole thing is gone. The economy is shot. Drugs did it. I didn't say it. They say it. The weakening of the moral fiber of people, all that stuff, all of it's happening now, but we can't point to that. It's the church that's going to be the element that lifts history and begins to move history back to a period of progress rather than decline and to redeem it from its period of decline. Or we might as well write off countries like the United States of America and other free nations. You might as well write them off. If you don't believe that, ask people who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, they thought it was the height of their glory. It's hard to tell people about famines whose favorite TV show is the Food Network. But historical trends in the church, the New Covenant community, the mediation, the, the penultimate end of redemption, if there's truly a continuity under the influence of the word that's preached properly in the power of the Spirit, there is the power and potential again to lift a period of history out of decline. It happens with pneumatic Christians, Christians under the power of the Spirit, not Christians operating in the arrogance of thinking the church is special or the church is the end result of God's redemption, but people who are humble, and I'm going to be explaining what it means to enter into the kingdom of heaven as a little child. I'm going to be explaining that to you in a radical Christ orientation that I've never seen before coming down the road. The obedience of Christ then called his meritorious obedience by Lonergan is of supreme importance in Hebrews as it is elsewhere in the scriptures. The obedience of Christ is also called Christ's perfect obedience. For our purposes, complete obedience is good. That's a good way to describe it, especially in view of completion being the key motif in all of Hebrews. Completion is the main theme or word in Hebrews. 
Christ is complete when he comprehends all of the creation. The complete Christ is the end denoted by redemption, the whole Christ, the supreme good, the end denoted in redemption. The whole Christ is Christ comprehending all of divinity bodily in himself and Christ comprehending all creation, including all of humanity, in himself. That's the ultimate end. We're on the way. Although he was the Son, the eternal Son, Hebrews 5.8, the Son, yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned obedience through suffering. In John's Gospel, Jesus says, My food, my food, is to do the will of him who sent me. And to bring his work to completion. John 4.34. In John 5.30, he said, I don't seek my own will. That's a radical departure from humanity. But the will of him who sent me. And in John 6.38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we must not forget that the will of the Father who sent the Son into this world is that the world would be saved through him. John 3.17. And that all of whom the Father gave me, Jesus said, I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, John 6.39. We should always remember that the will of God our Savior is for all of humanity to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.3, and the mystery of God's will is that all things in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, be summed up or redemptively recapitulated in Christ. That's the end denoted by redemption. God's will is not only that all humanity be saved, but that the whole universe be liberated. His will is not just anthropological, but cosmological. And again, what a time for telescopes to show us billions of light years of space, including new galaxies, because this is the horizon and sphere that we're beginning to get a glimpse of, of the magnitude of the redemption that God has brought in Jesus Christ. He pulls this thing that science calls entropy, which is its tendency toward death. The whole universe's tendency toward death, essentially called entropy. When the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world, he took away sin out of humanity, but he also took away sin and entropy out of the universe. Reversing entropy, everything is made new. Everything is made new eternally. All things are made new eternally. That's the ultimate end. And that's what's coming. The liberation of all creation. Romans eight nineteen to 23. So God's will is not only that all humanity be saved, but that the whole universe be liberated. In this way, we human beings will be brought to completion along with all the universe of its proportionate being as a new creation. Jesus' obedience, therefore, is the means of making this universal redemption a reality. So what's our obedience? Philippians 2.12. Two and a half years, guess what was happening? In our absence, your obedience was more important than in our presence. What do you think of that? Philippians 2.12. Our obedience to the word of God in these past two and a half years was more important than all the years we were together in presence together. Our obedience, while absent. And so, what is our obedience? Well, for one thing, it's our steady, patient continuity under the influence of what we're hearing. Some people pass that test. Some people flunk that test. The people that flunk that test can 
just keep moving on. Rebound and keep moving, if you want to use one of our old terms. See, now, since we've been away for two and a half years, you can't say to somebody, where have you been all this time? <laughs> where have you been all this time? <laughs> oh, I've been uh, obedient to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, more importantly, in our absence and in our presence. Why? What have you been doing? Philippians 2.5, have this attitude toward one another that Christ had. Though eternally existing in the essential form of God, didn't consider his equality with God something to hold on to. If you asked Jesus Christ, are you God? And he said, he would say, yes, I am, but it's no big deal to me. I'm not going to grasp onto that reality that I'm God and let you guys all go your way in the wages of sin being death. I'll empty myself of every prerogative of my divinity. I'll divest myself of all the privileges of being worshipped by all the angels in the heavens. I'll assume your humanity so that I will look like every other human person, although I will remain not a human person, but a divine person with a human nature. And then it says, instead he divested himself and became truly a slave by becoming in the likeness and homoiomati, the likeness of human persons. Why does it say likeness of human persons? Because he was a divine person, not a human person, even though he assumed human nature. Jesus Christ, the divine person, assumed a human nature while remaining a divine person so that you could be a partaker of the divine nature through him while not stopping being a human person. So instead he divested himself and became truly a slave. That means a slave of all people. If you're going to be the greatest of all, become the slave of all, and that's what he became. The slave becoming like human persons and was found in outward appearance, outward appearance, schema, Schemati, schema, as a man, as a human person, though he was not a human person, but a divine person acting humanly with a human nature. Therefore, you could call him the man, Christ Jesus, because as the old formula used to say, he's truly God, truly man, truly God-man. That's our mediator. So he became in the likeness, the outward appearance of a purely, merely human person. Romans 8.3 goes even further. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean he became sinful flesh? No. The likeness of sinful flesh means you really couldn't pick him out of a crowd unless you saw how significant he was with people around him, like on the Sermon on the Mount or on his way to Calvary. When he said to women who were weeping, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves, because if they do this thing in a green tree, in a time of history that's not so bad, what are they going to do in a dry tree when history hits the fan? If you see what people are capable of right now when things really aren't that bad yet, what do you think they'll be capable of when it really gets bad? That's what Jesus was saying. So you'd pick, you couldn't pick him out of a crowd because he looked like every other human being who were sinners, only he wasn't sinful flesh because he wasn't a purely human person. He was a divine person with a pure human nature minus sin. As we said last week, there's no man that can redeem himself and no man that can redeem his brother, but the man Christ Jesus, a divine person with a human nature, did pay the price that redeemed his brothers and sisters, a price that you can't even describe. So in closing then, continuing in Psalm and Philippians 2, 7. And in fact, Philippians 2, 5 through 12 is almost Hebrews in a nutshell, in a way, with different language. He divested himself and became truly a slave 
by becoming like human persons and was found in outward appearance as a human person, though he was a divine person who assumed a human nature and became flesh. That's all my commentary. Verse 8, he lowered himself, becoming obedient to the extent of the death of the cross. For this reason, and this takes us up to Hebrews 8.1, we have a high priest exalted at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and attributed to him the name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth will genuflect. And every tongue acknowledge that the Lord, Yahweh, is Jesus, Yeshua, to the glory of God the Father. What is the glory of God the Father? The glory of his mercy. The glory of his all-saving mercy. So, as I wind up this morning's message, what are we doing? I ask that in doing and living theology many times. What are we doing? We're dealing with the several features of Lonergan's 15th thesis regarding redemption. So this week and last week, we're face-to-face with redemption. It's a prominent motif in Hebrews, especially in its central section. And we've dealt, in some extent, with applying scriptural lower blade data to these features of redemption as denoting a mediation. With the payment of the price, Christ the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, the power of the risen Lord and the intercession of the eternal priest. And so we have yet to deal more systematically with his meritorious obedience which will lead to an understanding of our obedience and what it means and with what it means when redemption denotes an end. The end denoted by redemption is the same as the supreme good and the supreme good is the same as the whole or complete Christ. The whole or the complete Christ is Jesus Christ, our mediator, comprehending in himself and uniting in himself all of divinity in him bodily. And as the body of Christ, all things, tapanta, comprehended in him. The supreme good is everything divine and human, creational and human, summed up in Jesus Christ. That's the end that we look forward to. That's the termination. That's the great intention of God. And I'm just one of the messengers of it, one of the people with sinful flesh proclaiming this message. And my prayer as we close today is this. Father, I pray that this message will gain traction in this world today, that it will gain prominence and that it will be grasped by those who call themselves Christians, the church, the body of Christ, the New Testament, Testament, New Covenant community, that you will allow conversion, the elevation of horizon in the souls and minds of believers, so that the church, the body of Christ, though it will endure persecution and there will be many disincentives to continue in Christ, I pray that you will give motivation for patient continuance in this message, that this message will gain a foothold. And as it gains a foothold, that it will become momentum for the lifting up of current history from a decline to a redemption of this period of history. For the sake of our children, our children's children and their children, and generations to come. For we do not know, Father, when Jesus Christ will appear a second time with salvation. And so our concern is also for now. Let this word travel forth with power now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for your kind attentiveness. And we'll see you. We'll continue this next week. And Wednesdays for the very near future will be 
continuing online and perhaps pretty soon, and we'll be announcing it soon, we'll be coming back on Wednesdays live. So thanks for your attentiveness today. Good to see all of you. You haven't changed a bit. You've been transformed a little more, more though, so take care.